for January 23rd, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 447. Triple X, the world will catch sick air. Hey, Pete, would you say that your life has a purpose? Save the world, get the girl, and try to look dope doing it. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, and we are never happier than when we are hanging out together and uh, just uh, talking about the things we love. And this week, we love Triple X. The return of Xander Cage. That's right. We was are, he ever gone? We are welcoming <laughs> answer, you, yes, you back to the Xander zone. <laughs> uh, as, if, as if you had ever left the Xander zone. Uh, you know, some people just live in the Xander zone. And I like to think that we are three of those people. You've already heard the voice of illustrious overthinking at podcaster Pete Fenzel. Good evening, Pete. Good evening. And you, wow, you're really riding that mute button, huh? And we got Mark Lee with us as well. Hello, Mark. How are you? I am back. I'm very glad to be here and ready to talk about this movie. Yep. Um, now, this movie didn't do as well in the United States, uh, much better globally than it did domestically. Uh, it, it, got, it got beat by M. Night Shyamalan, actually, uh, by, by, I think, a factor of like two to one domestically. Um, it's probably not surprising, given the the uh, way the movie was constructed, given the the casting um, sort of designed to appeal to to a globalized box office. Uh, and you may not have seen this film. Um, your loss, I suppose. But uh, don't let that dissuade you from listening to the podcast because it's uh, it's a type of film and a, a lot of the things that happen in this movie and a lot of the things that happened to the Triple X franchise between the last installment and this one um, are typical of uh, what happens to franchises and, and really throws into relief some trends into uh, in the... Um, kind of action movie, uh, global box office, uh, studio temple kind of space. So uh, uh, strap in, buckle up as we, uh, as we drive this car out of a building. Wait, no, that's the other franchise starring Vin Diesel. I'm always making that mistake. <laughs> as we crash a panel van uh, into the concrete pylon on the side of uh, or underneath a, a freeway overpass uh, in Detroit because we are talking about Triple uh, X, The Return of Xander Cage. Now, as the characters are introduced... In this film, as Xander, as as the titular Triple X assembles his team, um, the characters are introduced with a technique that has been uh, used in a couple films, notably Suicide Squad recently. Uh, that uh, the the you see as the character is described or or kind of makes their first appearance, you see a freeze frame of them. The background drops out. There's kind of like a halftone, comic booky, or some kind of like stylized actiony backdrop behind them, and uh, their name appears. Like uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, uh, Peter Crazy Pete Fenzel and uh, three bullet points, you know, um, uh, up here like uh, munitions expert never knew his real father sometimes has crippling bouts of insomnia, except not like that. It's, you know, like one time uh, ate a whole 42 ounce steak on a dare, you know, things things with like uh, uh, things that, that are supposed to redound to the awesomeness of the character that's being introduced. Um, and so, panel, uh, in honor of this, in honor of this, uh, this feature of Triple X, Return of Xander Cage, and of contemporary action cinema in general, um, you're going to have the opportunity to uh, introduce yourself with three bullet points that would appear on your freeze frame uh, if you were if the overthinking a podcast were an action movie and this were the time that your character made his first uh, appearance. Alternatively or uh, optionally, I should say, you can give yourself a nickname that goes uh, in quotes between your first and last names. All right. 
I think we're ready. I think we're ready to rev up the engine and, and get going. I think we're ready to strap on the skis and ski down the mountain. I think we're ready to drive this motorcycle straight into the ocean on a single water ski. Let's do it. First in the alphabet, it is our friend, Pete Fenzel. Isn't this just such an efficient way to introduce characters? Just give us a couple just give us a couple bullet points. Don't, you know, tell, don't show. But don't even tell. Just write. Write. Print, <laughs> don't tell. And what is it? Show, don't tell. Print, don't show. Something along those lines. But yes, I guess if I had three bullets, it would be something the effect of, and it's got to be a, have a little bit of, of action pizzazz. It's got to be things that the audience might potentially be interested in. So I guess what? It could be like Bicycle, Cannondale, Bad Boy. Aeneid translation, Fitzgerald, <laughs> certified CrossFit judge, retired. Right? Like, uh, <laughs> you have to have retired in, in parentheses because I didn't register for this year. Uh, by the way, I do recommend if you if you enjoy watching people uh, do lifts correctly or incorrectly, I do recommend now that the CrossFit Open season has started taking the CrossFit judge certification course for $10 online. Uh, you watch videos of people working out and then click whether they did it right or wrong. And so if that's something you just do in general in life, you might as well uh, get a certificate for it. But uh, but yeah, there you go. That's what I would focus on. I think so. You knew what you were dealing with. Have you? I, <laughs> wait, these uh, you know, yeah. Well, badass first addition to the team, uh, Pete. You know, no CrossFit judgeship can contain you. Well, look, I'm out of the game, man. I, I can't. I can't do it anymore. But you know. I know people who can, and I know how you could. Uh, whatever, I don't know. Something along those lines. Move on to Mark. Move on to Mark. We've got to get to talk about this movie. Too. Mark Lee. All right. Uh, I got three things um, that have actually come up in the workplace all for me. I have like a, a pretty boring, normal desk job. But uh, you know how it is. You have icebreakers. And you have fun facts. And, you know, you have the sort of the, the, the basic facts come out to you about your background, things like that, and also your special skills in your profession, you know, as opposed to like, I don't know, DJing being a special skill in this movie or hacking or, you know, machines and whatnot. Uh, so uh, here's my rundown here. OK, uh, Mark Lee, bullet number one, was once interviewed for French television as a Terminator expert. <laughs> bullet number two was born in Alabama, but does not have a southern accent. Bullet number three, special skill, Excel pivot tables. <laughs> I got to get you to teach me how to do those, man. What? <laughs> those, that's, that's like legitimately impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah you got to like make sure your data set is structured correctly. And then, okay. well, Pete, are you using Excel 2010 or 2013? It makes a difference, you know, because oh, the, the interface changed. Well, well, well I'm going to take you to uh, my special triple Excel training program <laughs> after the podcast. There it is. Mark sort the data, query, <laughs> run the query. And try to look dope doing it. <laughs> uh, Mark Triple XL Lee, another member of our ragtag team of misfits and outsiders here on the Overthinking It podcast. And I'm Matt Bleeding Edge Rather, proud Angelino, holder of a degree in writing poetry, former birthday party clown. <laughs> All true things. All true facts. Three three true facts about uh, about me. Um, and so now we uh, now we jump jump into this movie, having assembled our crack team of podcasters. And uh, and uh, I, I pause only one one moment to say that uh, yesterday, twenty second of January two thousand seventeen, uh, was the ninth anniversary of overthinking it. And I wrote a little post commemorating the ninth anniversary as it has been my privilege and prerogative to do, uh, over the last, uh, the last several years. And it is a, uh, it is a responsibility that I discharge with not a little joy. I'm very proud of, uh, overthinking it. I'm very proud of the podcast, of the articles, of the videos, uh, of the commenters on the site. Uh, I'm especially grateful in the past year to the members who have sustained us with their generous contributions of money for which they have gotten cool things in return and uh, the knowledge that they are helping to perpetuate overthinking it uh, well into the future. Um, thanks very much, everyone, for uh, being part of this this great project these past nine uh, nine years. And, and now, if ever there was a film made for the Overthinking It podcast, it was Triple X 
the return of of Xander Cage. Um, Pete, how are you feeling to be back in the Xander zone? I mean, it was a delight. I, the thing I keep telling people is that if you enjoyed the previous Triple X movies, this movie uh, does more for you than you have any right to expect, <laughs> right? Like this, this is not only is it sort of a meaningful synthesis and advancement of the Triple X story, which nobody expected, but it does seem to hew relatively reasonably to at least basic matters of sort of character and theme. I mean, I feel like, because we I rewatched the first Triple X movie before watching this one. I did not watch the second one, although it turns out I should have, right? Um, mm. But... But the 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 way in which this movie sort of uh, is is a product or is a reflection of reflection is probably the best way of putting it, because it's sort of like they were going to do a reboot. But they realized that the best possible reboot they could do was just to bring Vin Diesel on it, like put Vin Diesel in the movie. So they just didn't bother doing a reboot and just sort of did a sequel that disregards a bunch of a plot that happened previously wherein he died. Right. And they don't go into any detail about how he's not dead, right, for example, uh, which I think was made fairly explicit in Triple X2. But, but the point being that the whole idea, right, the sort of big idea behind Triple X is you're making a spy movie that has stunts in it. And instead of doing stunts where people get thrown off buildings or people crash through glass, they have some of that. Most of the stunts are going to be extreme sports stunts, right? And as such, the protagonist is going to be an extreme sports athlete. Uh, and and Triple X beat for beat kind of goes through the first one, a whole the whole X Games, right? Minus the street losing, right? And there's like there's the skate, he has skateboard tricks with a tray off a railing. He has a snowboarding in front of an avalanche, right? He base jumps off of a bridge. Right, he does all this kind of extreme stuff that was very. Uh, it was even felt a little bit dated in 2002, right? All of the the excitement about like, oh man, the, you know, nowadays drinking Mountain Dew is something when you sit on your chair and, and frag noobs, right? It, it's not something that you do whilst you know leaping outward, uh, arms wide open into the wild blue yonder. Um, nowadays, Ninja Warrior is a profession, you know, not 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 a not a social illness, right? It's. Uh, <laughs> The idea of Triple X being an outcast and being kind of a rebel and a renegade because he practices uh, snowboarding is does not feel current, right? It yeah. does not feel for, current. For some context in history, um, the X Games, right, which is a good bellwether of uh, this idea of extreme sports really entering the mainstream, uh, they started in the summer of 1995. So what, 2002 was the first Triple X movie, so it had already been around for seven years, right? And this entire aesthetic of uh, extreme uh, uh, felt dated uh, already then. I think you're saying, like, is that much more dated now? Right, right. And and, and so what Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage does is, well, what lives in the culture now? And the culture, it, what, what they mean by the culture is an interesting question in itself. And I think this is a question that a lot of reboots ask. What lives in the culture now that occupies, occupies a similar sort of space that extreme sports occupied in 2002? And that it is something that is countercultural and associated with youth culture, but is not so countercultural that nobody knows about it, right? Like something that is like, that's something that you would think of the kids doing, right? What do the kids do, right? Like what, what is sort of part of that whole you know, thing, right? That that whole that whole field of experience. Ah, uh, Snapchat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There is in fact a Snapchat scene in this movie. Which yeah, is you're delightful. right. It totally is. Yeah, oh, you didn't think that, that when you said oh it, but gosh. you totally it, it <laughs> totally was. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. What were you going to say? <laughs> so, by the way, if, for those of you who didn't see it and are still listening, first of all, God bless you. Second of all, uh, in this movie, Rory McCann, aka the Hound from Game of Thrones, plays a like Jimmy Buffett-ish uh, shirt-wearing Scottish conspiracy theorist who crashes cars into walls and takes Snapchat selfies of himself. And there is, in fact, a Snapchat overlay uh, that is in the film, that is sort of a freeze frame in the film, uh, to show that Rory McCann, despite not himself being a millennial, has millennial predilections. <laughs> not in the way you're thinking. Not in the way no, that no, would no, get no, you put on way. some kind of Aria. registry. I'm not talking about Aria. No. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's a conspiracy theorist who also does Snapchat. So those are two things. And then there's a a uh, a kind of non gender normative androgynous 
uh, lesbian anti-poacher, like poacher hunter, right, who protects animal rights in Africa by shooting uh, game hunters and poachers, right? Uh, and then there's a DJ who uh, delivers one of the great reposts in recent cinematic history uh, while when told uh, that you are all soldiers. Uh, what, in fact, does he say? Do you remember what he says, uh, Mark? Oh, I don't remember off the top of my head. Oh, he says, I'm not a soldier. I'm a baller. That's right. Ah, I'm a there soldier. Go, yes. I'm a baller. Right. And his ability is to be a DJ. And so he gets up on stage wherever they are in the movie. He just gets up on stage and starts waving his hands around and zips his hand along presumably somebody else's laptop. Right. And the whole crowd is going crazy because it's so sick. Uh, and and that's Drop kind of the like, bass. Drop the b- 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 bass. But, like, I don't know. I don't know how he could be a DJ without bringing any of his equipment. He, I don't know how he could be a DJ super spy without bringing his DJ equipment along with him whilst he super spies. But Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, seems to make it work. Uh, plausibility has never been the—in the. the uh, in fact, plausibility and competence have never held back the Triple X franchise. Because as Blinky loves to point out, Triple X spends most of the first movie getting captured constantly by anybody <laughs> that he's trying to investigate. And that's how he ends up in all their secret hideouts. They all capture him, and they're like, hey, this is a pretty cool guy. Maybe we won't kill him, and we'll just hang out with him because he's the best. Right? And he's like, hey, you know, I'm, tri- I'm Xander Cage. And like, I mean, we saw you on YouTube. And All right. Anyway. Since we brought up the topic of plausibility— uh, I mean, again, we should continue the conversation around how this is a millennial movie, uh, perhaps further on in the show. But on the subject of plausibility, I feel like this movie came out immediately out of the gate. Now, keep in mind, also, I have not seen any other triple X movies in this, so I didn't really have a great sense of what to expect from this, um, aside from what I saw in the trailer, which is promised extreme action. But uh, I, I think this movie really strongly came out of the gate and said, like, this is really going to use to self-consciously stretch any sense of plausibility with a couple oh, yeah. of key things. One is that uh, the title car very early on says uh, CIA headquarters, colon, New York, New York. Uh, spoiler <laughs> alert, CIA headquarters are not, in fact, in New York. Uh, yeah. And the other thing is in that uh, intro action sequence in CIA headquarters, in New York, New York, um, there are a series of impossibly elongated slides across surfaces that have more friction than should allow for those long slides, right? Um, <laughs> floors, conference room tables, right? They last just long enough. So you're like, wait a minute, but not like so long that it crosses over into the straight up comedy realm. Um, so I, I feel like that is a, is a healthy way to think about plausibility in this movie. Um, and it, it speaks to a certain level of, of self-consciousness or self-awareness, which uh, uh, it didn't quite shine through in the middle third of the movie, but came back at the end with a in in in, in glorious style with the, with a plane sequence at the end. But uh, Pete, does that resonate with you? Is that like essential oh, yeah. to the triple Xness? And like, oh, how then do we take that level of like uh, straining credulity and compare that uh, to other spy or action movies? Well, so the most notable and if you even if you saw the movie, you might have missed this, which is uh, so in the first triple X movie, there's a scene and we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago. And you should totally watch that scene uh, where triple X steals a Corvette. He pretends to be a valet and he has a a variety of ethnic uh, insults aimed at him. And then he steals a Corvette, records a video of social criticism and then drives the Corvette off a bridge while (laughs) parachuting. (laughs) Um, And it's all very still relevant, like that whole speech by Xander Cage about the guy who drives the Corvette and what a jerk he is and and how everything that those sorts of people think about the young is incorrect and or uh, not to be considered seriously. But but the thing that sometimes gets mixed is that when Triple X lands after parachuting off the bridge that he drove the Corvette off of, he is picked up in a car and, and a getaway car and driven away. And the driver of the getaway car is Tony Hawk. Right. Uh, So it is more it is not just implied, but outright stated that the actual skateboarders in the world are are friends of Xander Cage and assist him in his various uh, stunts and and mischiefs Um, in this movie. And the thing you might miss in in triple X three in Xander Cage is that the the Samuel Jackson comes on. And and I I do love the movie's commitments to finding alternate ways, because one of the toughest things to do as a screenwriter 
I, I I've been told and and I've and I've been uh, I've read you know I've never actually written a screenplay myself, which I should get to you know once this once I, once this podcast is over. But we're going to be talking about this movie for a long time. But uh, no, is Pete, that, after um, this podcast is over, you're going to X, triple XL pivot table camp with me. <laughs> I'm going to write yeah, exactly. I'm going to start taking triple XL classes. Um, is that is it? How do you write exposition while keeping it interesting? Right? How do you explain to people in the movie what's happening? While at the same time, confer to them essential information while at the same time not boring them, right, by putting something on screen that isn't going to be fun. And this movie, I felt, had a really innovative idea, which was just have Samuel L. Jackson talk to the camera and tell the audience everything that's going to happen (laughs) in the movie. (laughs) Relay essential facts. Try to look look dope while doing yeah, it. Yeah, and he just explains like, "Where's the where I I founded the Triple X organization. This is why I did it. I founded the Triple X organization. This is what I did it. This is what it does. I founded the Triple X organization. This is what it does." Right? And he just repeats himself. But do you guys recognize the guy that he was interviewing? Yeah, I, he I was a, right after the fact. Uh, right, professionals and, suck. The right, one too. And, and he's uh, he's actually he's in the credits name checked as playing himself. Yes, he is a huge international sports superstar. It is in fact Neymar, right <laughs> from the from the Brazilian national team, uh, and and also from FC uh, wait, wait, Barcelona. You're, you're, you're from Boston. Do you mean Noma? <laughs> it's not Noma. It's Neymar. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, he was the team captain when Brazil won the gold medal in the 2016 Summer Olympics. He's a huge international star. And the idea that he is part of the Triple X team introduces very early on two things. One, if you're American, you're probably not going to get everything that this movie is throwing at you. And you're probably not going to fully appreciate a lot of the metacasting. And two, uh, the movie is not serious, right? The movie is not serious. Oh, oh, speaking of the bullet points, right? His one, His card of bullet points included thought he was being recruited for the Avengers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which should tell you what's going on with this movie pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty quickly. And Samuel Jackson also, uh, name checks Lords of Dogtown, the movie, yeah. right? Yeah, there's a bunch of different movies that are name checked, and Terminator. then later on, which we'll get to, Triple X Two: State of the Union is like specifically referenced as 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 like something that happened, right? Um, not the movie per se, but the, the release date of it, and as such. But so, um, so Pete, I want I want to nail you down a little bit. I want to nail you down, Pete, in in, in the most yeah. extreme fashion on on what you're saying. So, what is the 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 your contention is that the project of this film is to find sufficiently countercultural. The way X Games things were uh, countercultural, uh, as as the X Games were to 2002 mainstream society, so too is being a lesbian anti-poacher to uh, uh, 2017 mainstream society? Yeah, I would think so, because we're a little bit past the sort of real vogue of aggressive animal rights protesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, I haven't heard anything in terms of big stunts by PETA or big Greenpeace things in like a long time. Right. Um, and, and, but it's something that's established as being sort of OK to feel really strongly about. It's something that's in the culture. Um, and so and I think that uh, certainly Ruby Rose, so Ruby Rose is in this movie. Right. And she's an MTV VJ from Australia or MTV host rather from Australia who um, has a rather. uh involved relationship with interrogating her own gender, uh, which I can't really speak to with too much authority uh, just because I read the Wikipedia pages and, and I read up on it. But it seems like they did make an effort to try to have some gender critique in this. But yeah, I would say that that being a cool DJ, like when you think about the DJ one is, is a clearer example, because when you think of the sort of heyday of uh, of EDM DJ as pop musician, right, you're thinking of like, scary monsters and nice sprites right you're thinking of skrillex you're thinking of dead mouse and that's like five or six years ago at this point right um and and so the i like now uh yeah so I'm, I'm just confirming it scary monsters and nice sprites came out in 2010 and that's really what i associate with kind of the high point of dubstep as pop music Right. Which is not the same as like, DJs as cool people or DJs as kind of independent musicians and, and sort of uh, auteurs. Right. But to me, the sort of the moment where it was new and interesting that EDM was like really, really mainstream with young people, like to a greater degree than, say, guitar driven rock music uh, was was like 
six or seven years ago. So, okay, um, I mean, like th- this is, th- I mean, this is interesting to me because I, I think it goes to, I, I think this throws into relief some ways our our culture has changed, right? Mm-hmm. That there isn't, there isn't sort of an underground in quite the same way as there is uh, in in 2012, right? Like there's uh, or uh, sorry, 2002, right? 2002, there's sort of Anarchy 99. You know, was there? <laughs> that was the name of the of the evil Russian. Um, uh, sort of anarchist organization anti i mean for a uh for for anarchists they really engaged in a lot of collective action i'm just saying <laughs> like those uh those parties didn't throw themselves you know yeah. like uh when uh when the bad guy says one of my favorite lines in in movies you know su- super sexist uh, uh uh work is over now we party bitches come to you know summon the go-go dancers in to uh to dance with xander and let's sigh yeah let's sigh. and, and well, oh, you have yeah, to ruin you know. a perfectly good movie by doing that i guess he is the bad guy right so yeah well I, well i mean there's there's a film like i there's a film that's i i feel like with asia argento's character sort of engaged in a certain kind of a certain kind of gender critique as well mm-hmm. uh, uh b- perhaps profounder still than than the one engaged in in uh in this film because it really calls into question um ideas of agency you know uh, because the, the, in, in making the, Asia Argento's character, the, the female counterpart, the, and love interest of Xander Cage, um, a sort of spy who got burned, you know, and uh, is sort of questions of agency, of legitimacy and authenticity and of identity are really thrown thrown open by uh, uh, by this move because she can be a better super spy than than a lot of the men. Um, but you get the sense that this is not an identity that she would choose. It's one that that got sort of thrust upon her and that's uh uh interesting and and sophisticated like okay so then so the 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 um it's a 2002 villain right it's a uh non-state actor international terrorist organization that um that is going to bomb you you know right. that's going to thr- there's and it's like nerve agents and uh something like this so this like this reflects a lot of contemporary anxieties uh at, you know at least in America about biological warfare about terrorism yep. about non-state actors uh you know about sort of asia generally <laughs> you know <laughs> uh like uh or you know west asia i guess you know generally um so okay so so that's that's that was then this is now today the the um bad guys are sort of the governments themselves are sort of rogue elements within the government but you don't you get the sense that 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 they're not so rogue because when spoiler alert tony collette turns on uh xander at the end and you know shoots him um on orders from the president uh you get the sense that this is you know that that the the sort of fish rots from the head uh there's a kind of anti-authoritarianism and the bad thing that's going to happen is that like your encryption is like all your emails are going to be Hacked and become public and be posted on WikiLeaks, right? Like uh, the the satellites, the kind of the the infrastructure of global communication are going to come sort of crashing out of the sky. And this, like, so this box that can de-encrypt, decrypt everything um, is, you know, at least as old as sneakers, if not before, and is is related to sort of archetypal stories of like a key that can open all locks or even like uh, guy, the ring of Gyges that can make that can make the, the, the wearer invisible so that you can act undetected or sort of discover the secrets of your enemies. You know, and- it's some very old school MacGuffin. For uh, a movie that has spent a lot of time talking about these uh, very you know, more contemporary notions of knowledge and information economies and things like that, so that was definitely like a, a, a incongruity, a, a, a one of the weaker points of the movie. But uh, it is a MacGuffin, right? The movie needed a MacGuffin, right? Because what you're talking about, and just to slow it down for a hot second, if anybody who didn't see the movie is listening to this, first of all, God bless you, and second of all, uh, there's this device called Pandora's Box. 
which is looks about the size of a Sega Game Gear. So it's about, you know, <laughs> like maybe about a, a VHS tape, right? A little bit bigger than that. And uh, it, it has the power. I don't even remember all the encrypting stuff. I just remember that you could push a button and a bunch of stuff will happen. And then a, a communication satellite or some sort of satellite will crash like meteorite style into the Earth. And in ways that defy my expectation for what happens when an object of that size passes through the atmosphere, it will like create a large explosion. And this can be used to target and assassinate individual people and also take out like large sporting events and other sorts of gatherings. Right. So it's like a, it's almost like having an orbital ion cannon, except it's just you can bring down satellites on people whenever you want. And so the governments of the world have kind of these shadowy cabal meetings where they kind of negotiate who's going to use it and what's going to a lot of the a lot of the political critique of the movie is in the conversations around this device exists. And I think this is what's very very much of the moment about it is that devices like this and in this case this device exists what are we going to do with it? Who is going to control it? Because the the idea that we could destroy it, and it is destroyed multiple times in this movie, because it, <laughs> in, in rather sloppy fashion, they get one of them, and it get, and it's like, oh, that wasn't the real one. We have to get another one, and it's like, all right, fine, you know, like there was a fake one and a different one. That, I mean, that that was some like, I'm sorry, Mario, your princess is in another <laughs> castle level storytelling right. there. But on one hand, the governments of the world want to reclaim the device from the renegades so that they can sort of uphold their legitimacy. But they also you also get the sense that they want to use it for shady purposes, right, against their enemies, against people who don't deserve it. Right. And also against innocent civilians, if necessary. Uh, right. And, and that's not acceptable. But then the spies also want it. And there's like a there's like a triad of spies. Right. Who all want the device for different reasons. Right. Um, do, do you remember why did Donnie Yen Donnie Yen wanted the device uh, to use it? Yeah, it's or, un, it's unclear. Right. Donnie Donnie yeah. Yen's character uh, was Donnie By the way, another one of the largest movie stars in the world. Right. Is in there's multiple of the largest movie stars in the world that are in this movie. They just don't necessarily they're not huge in America. Right. So Donnie Yen, who is in Star Wars Rogue One, uh, is one of the biggest action stars in Asia and is in this movie as the leader of a sort of renegade triple X chapter who's also hunting that device. But sorry, I interrupted you, Matt. Uh, well, yeah, it's unclear who they're, who they're working for. The for the, and spoiler alert, for anyone who hasn't watched this movie, first of all, God bless you. Second, <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, uh, it turns out that the antagonistic, at least for the first act, uh, or you know, first act and part of the second, their antagonists are also triple x agents who are trying to recover uh who are trying to recover the MacGuffin. i was trying to think of any kind of contemporary piece of technology that is that size um and i can't <laughs> i can't think of a single one because that's an awful size like it's just slightly too big to be held comfortably in one hand right i think Le the nintendo switch is about that size right <laughs> like like just a little bit too big but also just a little bit too small um, it's, yeah, it's bigger than this, right? Yeah. Like the the two one and a half inch thick form factor that just makes no sense at all in modern electronics. Yeah. Uh, also, by the way, to to actually crack modern encryption requires a like a, a networked set of requires a server form, not like uh, not like a small you know device the size of a uh, of an answering machine, uh, the way it was in sneakers. Or I mean, it's funny. Here we are, decades on from sneakers, and the universal decryption device hasn't really gotten any smaller. Right? Wasn't didn't Moore's law mean that we were supposed to have you know incredible advances in miniaturization on the order of you know doubling the number of transistors that can fit in a given space every eighteen months or something like that? Like, what? Why is the uh, secret super decryption device the same size uh, as it was in in sneakers? I mean, That's all I if wanted. Moore's law really held true, our MacGuffins at this point wouldn't be visible to the naked eye; they would just be having in size, right, over and over again. The Maltese Falcon would. How many Maltese Falcons can you fit on the head of a fit? <laughs> right, exactly. The Maltese, the Maltese Falcon would be like a, a Maltese like cufflink or something yeah. like that. Oh no! To my point, the Maltese Falcon would just be an algorithm that exists in the cloud, like distributed across yeah. uh, multiple Amazon servers. Yeah, exactly. Yep. The, the Maltese Falcon would be the Falcon Protocol. That, you know that we have to like recover from Russia or something like that. Um, 
So, uh, oh God, I forget where I forget where I was going with this. Where the hell were we in our? Uh, I, I mean, we're talking about the politics of this, right? I, you know, the, I lost uh, sight the, of the, beyond- the the ball on the field. Yeah, it's unclear who they're who they're working for. But even in the antagonist uh, cadre, um, Donnie Yen wants to uh, uh, keep the device, whereas uh, Deepika. I'm sorry, I'm going to to. I, I'm not familiar with her, so I'm going to uh, butcher the pronunciation of her name. Um, but uh, Deepika Padukone. Uh, uh, who is the sexy it's it's so convenient um that in order for a strong female character to be a badass ninja she has to wear such tight-fitting costumes all the time um it just yeah, it's uh, called the entrapment the entrapment clause <laughs> which is when they discovered with Catherine zeta jones in entrapment that, that they could <laughs> i mean to be fair she moves to like athleisure pants towards the third act of the movie right <laughs> Every character has to have an arc, Mark. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think uh, it, it is implied but not explicit that Donnie Yen's character maybe wants to hold on to it for leverage. Maybe he's being a little bit more sort of ruthless and mercenary about it. And then Deepika uh, Petaconi's character is being more idealistic and wants to destroy it because she knows this power is too great for any any uh, government uh, to, to responsibly wield. Right. Whereas Vin Diesel wants to recover it for his country because Vin Diesel is not a millennial and as such uh, still still believes that in institutions, even despite his uh, history of rebelliousness. So the, really mean, sort of yeah, exi- oh, go ahead. Right, the, the, this is the thing that I actually want. Finally, just a, a long way around the barn to come to the point that I wanted to make initially, which was that this is the thing I think that that is revealed about the the uh, difference in the culture. Right. Like the the idea of anti-authoritarianism is not even questioned. Like the idea that. It's it's shocking at all or outrageous in any respect when it turns out that the institutions are corrupt, right? That uh, uh, that they're acting in a venal and um, sort of self-serving manner uh, and not really serving the people whom they purport to to serve to keep safe you know whatever um this isn't this we don't even bat an eyelash at this you know uh it's uh i don't know it's a, it's a sort of interesting thing and that they're 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 i think i think you're right in terms of framing it in terms of triple x has uh faith in institutions but it more his circle of trust is a lot smaller, right? Like, I'm not sure that that his faith in in institutions goes farther up the chain than Samuel L. Jackson, and it's sort of only by invoking him, uh, invoking Augustus Gibbons, that Tony Collette manages to recruit him to the uh, to the cause. Um, uh, Tony Collette's character, by the way, her name is Mark. Uh, you know, which which is up there uh, with Charlie in Top Gun as a uh, a female character having a dude's name because she's really a dude. <laughs> oh man, yeah, no, it is interesting. I think one thing that one thing I thought was really interesting about this movie, one moment that I was really interested in, in in terms of this interrogation, right, of what feels new and what feels uh, what feels old, and this idea of certain things that back in the age of the original triple X were thought of as existing in sort of a dialectic or an opposition to each other now just sort of seem to exist in sort of full in a sort of rounder understanding of all aspects of approval or rejection of them uh, is the, the, the scene where triple X is talking to the soldiers, right? So this idea is triple X is on a car is on a, a transport plane. He's on a cargo plane and he's with this sort of elite military unit and he's being informed and the elite military unit is headed up by a relatively famous actor, I think, but not one that whose name I could name off the top of my head. Um, so that gives you an accurate sense of what this movie was like, uh, is that uh, he's going to be deployed with these soldiers, and these soldiers are going to watch him, they're going to act with him, and presumably they're going to kill him after he gets the device, but they never really get into that. And Vin Diesel has this very strange monologue Right. This like really weird monologue where he's like walks slowly in a circle around the soldiers and he's like, have you ever done a triple backflip on a BMX bike? Right. Like, have you ever snowboarded in front of an avalanche? Right. And he he just sort of starts listing these extreme sports achievements. And it's just kind of remarkable how to him there is something essentially 
there is something about riding a BMX bike. Like one of the soldiers could be like, yes, right. Like I have in fact, I in fact do true tricks on BMX bikes. I I do it sometimes. uh, You know, I have a YouTube channel that I update when I'm not, when I'm on shore leave, right from my secret, uh, super secret cabal special forces group. Uh, Where it's like, you know, did you ever, this, this idea that the things that he did, like the the whole sort of skateboarding is not a crime vibe from back in the day is very present in this scene. And everybody's just sort of confused as to why Vin Diesel is saying these things until he like pulls a lever and, and he, he has clipped, he has used this monologue to distract everyone while he clips the soldiers to a parachute and then pulls a lever to open the cargo bay and they get blown out of the plane. Right. Um, but I just, I thought it was really interesting because they acknowledged they, the movie both held on to triple X's own outdated notion of culture and counterculture because Triple X can't do what he does, right? So for his country, right? Triple X can't do what he does for his country unless he sees the authoritarians and the rebels as in sort of a battle for the soul of the country, right? But the country is a thing that exists uh, uh, to a, to a greater degree than either the authoritarians or the rebels, right? Like the, even the government per se, right? Even the government is. Uh, is is something that people are sort of vying for control over, and there's there's a there's an axis on which it turns between the people who follow the rules and the people who don't follow the rules. And so, even though Triple X doesn't really like police people, uh, although he mostly hates the rich, he's willing to do things in the service of the NSA, right? Which is the parent organization of Triple X, or at least that's what we're led to believe in the first movie, even if it doesn't prove to be the case later on. Um, where even though he considers himself to be a rebel, right? Whereas when you think about I'm not a soldier, I'm a baller, right? This this is so there's just this wholesale rejection of the notion that that you're serve that you're at all connected with the government. Right. And or even even I don't think the animal poaching never even comes up again. Right. It's like, oh, I fight poachers and you and the government, you and the government, you let the big game hunters, you know, that the president's bone best friend went and shot a lion. Right. Or his son went and shot a lion or wherever it was. Uh, And that's not acceptable. No, Ruby Rose never even brings it up. Right. Because this idea of the things that Vin Diesel did and does as Andrew Cage. And there is a pretty righteous skateboarding scene in this movie and a righteous parabolic skiing through the rainforest scene in this movie. So if you like extreme sports, it's there. It's all in the first act. Um, but uh, but the things that Vin Diesel did, right, were, were as, you're, as you're saying, they're part of this idea of counterculture and that, that exists counter to culture, which we've said a couple times on the podcast, whereas the new counterculture doesn't really exist counter to Right. Like there's not there's there's like it's almost it's sort of like a, a round table, as it were, where each person has their own sort of culture that they're advancing. And there's a lot of different vectors. Uh, one of the things that this allows for is it allows for the people on the triple X team to have complex relationships with each other, which are played out through simple dialogue scenes. Right. But they're, they're complex relationships played out through very simple uh, actions and words. Um, sure. Well, yeah, yeah. Among among the men, among among the women, it's it's generally a kind of uh, uh, vague by curiosity played out through actions and words. <laughs> I feel like there's a little more. The movie does pass the Bechdel test, although I did point out that they only shoot men. But they do talk about guns <laughs> and other <laughs> and other things, <laughs> right? Like, uh, but yeah, there is the movie is also really sexploitative, like really sexploitative. Yeah, I felt like yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. the movie For, they compared, but, I but, like, but PG, yeah. but PG thirteen, right? Yeah, like which actually goes to show it's an interesting case study in how you don't need to be explicit to be to be sexploitative. You know, there's a, there's a great scene, um, sort of early in the second act when they finally meet Donnie Yen, uh, and, uh, and he and Vin Diesel sit down for drinks and the, the, there's an insert of the drinks being poured on the table and, uh, out of focus, but in focus enough in the medium ground of this shot is, uh, the bartender pouring the drinks who is wearing a bikini bottom. And it's, uh, you know, her, her pelvis, lower torso and pelvis, with two uh two glasses in the i mean that's the style of the the sexploitation in this uh uh in this film it's it's sort of blatant i mean it's almost too blatant uh to be and and sort of gleeful like giddy to be objected to but but i have a feeling that object to it is is precisely what we're about to do so hit it pete oh hit it me oh god well, well, i don't know it's a 
I mean, it's it's just it makes I feel like it does. It, on one hand, it enlarges the audience, right? I feel like the sexualization <laughs> in this movie. It enlarges part of the audience. I, I feel, I feel like the sexploitation in this movie is is about. Whereas there is a lot in the movie that kind of is about the gender roles that is a little bit more interesting and kind of about character and sort of about how that interacts with the movie. The sexploitation is about who's watching the movie. And these these triple X movies are movies where the task of finding someone who's going to watch what you're doing seems to be a task that is sort of independent of and superior to the civil power of telling a story, right? Like, who's going to actually watch this movie? Well, we can have him ride a dirt bike over an exploding barn. Okay, someone will watch that. Right. And, and there's a sense of this movie is market driven. This is not a movie that is being made because Vin Diesel really felt like there was more he had to say about Xander Cage. Right. Like this is a market driven movie that is being made, I think, primarily because Chinese movie studios really love American brands and, and uh, they love the, the ability to sell those American brands in the Chinese market. And so they largely finance this movie. Right. And then uh, you combine with the American studio, you get a bunch of partnerships and you get Tony Jaw, the Thai warrior, to play a character who unfortunately is forced to speak English, though, even though he does it. But the point is that it shows that they're more concerned about viewers overseas than viewers in the United States, I think, because I feel like and again, I can't speak, you know, and we love to have women on the podcast and I wish we had uh, women on the podcast more often. And I can't speak for women in general, but I feel like if I were a woman, I would be uncomfortable with how many characters are in bikinis in this movie. I was even a little uncomfortable with how many characters are in bikinis in this movie. Uh, and it's even it's even to a much greater degree than something like The Fast and the Furious, where there's sort of an anthropological aspect to it, where it's like, oh, this is this is what young people are like and this is what young people want to see. And you can establish a certain amount of distance from it a lot of the time. Or this, this is movie, this is like, how young this is how young people behave. I mean, for yeah. what it's worth, that was much much more true of the early entries in the Fast and the Furious franchise yeah, yeah. than than it is in the in the later entries. Where there's, I mean, I feel like there's a um, how how to put this. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, PG-13 movie, right? There is a, a shot early in the film that, that stuck out to me because of, of the perfect framing of this where you see like two inches of, uh, of Elizabeth Swan's Elizabeth, right? Of the, the uh, Kira Knightley character's cleavage. And it's just so – it's so – Exactly right. It's like this is the the geometric limit of what we could get a PG thirteen rating for, you know. Right. And that like um, there there there's this quality now in like in the franchises, and it's true of Fast and, and Furious. It's true of this, where there is almost there's almost an engineering to the display of flesh, right? That is neither. Neither relevant to the story nor particularly joyful on its own terms, right? Like the thing that you can say about those uh, early Fast and the Furious scenes where they're at the drag races and and people are dressed in skimpy clothing, uh, you know, a lot of dudes in net shirts, you know, like a <laughs> lot, lot of lot of women in in short little uh, the the pleated skirts that were popular at the time. Um, that there's an exuberance to it, right? There's a kind of energy that that animates it that seems uh, uh, native to the to the movie. And and here it we've gone into. We've gone into the um, the realm where these things are are engineered, right? And I think you're right to identify this. This film was not put together out of any overriding artistic impulse uh, at all. Which is not to say that there isn't kind of an aesthetic sensibility that that governs it um, and a kind of craftsmanship. Uh, there absolutely is, and it's something oh, yeah. that's it's something that happens to a lot of. Um, a lot of franchises like this contrast uh, the Expendables versus the Expendables three, for example, uh, and there's a, a similar sort of movement. And contrast the early entries versus the late entries in the Fast and the Furious franchise, where the uh, the early ones all 
like 201 almost have kind of a lo-fi vibe, you know, uh, kind of under the radar, independent movie in, in the old mid nineties sense of like indie cinema, um, kind of vibe. And they have a unique voice that is distinctive and that stands in opposition to the, uh, at, at least in one or two important ways to the, uh, mainstream action movie storytelling, um, of the time with the expendables. It has to do with, with age and the, uh, you know, and that is gradually erased as the, um, as the, the movie goes on in fast and furious. It has to do with sort of ethnic subaltern or ethnic subcultures, subaltern and kind of, um, thriving, but marginalized, uh, subcultures, of of Los Angeles, where it's where it's set, and that is as they turn into a uh, an organization of super spies and like uh, master thieves. That is that is gradually uh, that's gradually erased, and there's there is a similar move that that happens in this, and and the the kind of the skin, the kind of the soft core, uh, you know, buffet of flesh, uh, multicultural. You know, buffet of uh, multicultural, though not really multi-body type um, display <laughs> display of of flesh is part of the same. Uh, is part of the same movement where these things that once kind of had sort of distinctive voices now are engineered to conform to a certain you know what we might call what we might call the the international style in uh in sexploitation right like uh and engineered um frame by frame to do it in the most uh uh, uh provocative way possible anyway that i mean th- so th- yeah. this is what i uh, you know and, this and is I what also, occurred to me with this my final clarification on it is i'm not against looking at beautiful people and also sexual objectification in general in in movies i feel like that's something that happens and it's something that people go to the movies go to the theater to to see and do and i and i don't want to i don't want to sort of uh give give i guess i don't even remember what the phrase give truth to the lie really means but i don't want to validate the mistaken belief that people are even capable of separating themselves from that kind of impulse totally right Uh, You know, you can be aware of things and change things, but like that's part of being human is looking at other people. And so I don't want to come off as saying, oh, this movie is is uh, this movie is is sexist because of the way that objectifies the women in it. And movies shouldn't have uh, women in them that people should look at. And and I'm saying, no, 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 no. See the movie (laughs) and you'll see that these the length that they go to is 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 conspicuous right is distracting right it, it is so much now part of it might be i heard that vin diesel said that he would only do the movie if it was fun and light because he was emotionally exhausted from paul walker's death and the sort of two-year artistic tour of for- tour divorce that vin diesel did following it right and he just he wanted to do something light and maybe that's why the movie is full of parties and exotic locations that vin <laughs> diesel got to go to but uh but the point is that if you're if you hear that and it makes you angry because you think I'm attacking something that's like kind of personal, but also sometimes like and so it should be sort of something everybody does and people get high and mighty by criticizing it when they do it, too. I get you. And I'm saying this movie is this movie is doing it for a standard that feels like well, it, it feels if Roger Moore movie, except like times a thousand. It feels like something that's not from the culture that I currently live in, probably something that is more standard for some of the other international markets and other international cinema production uh, cultures, right, where this kind of thing might be more common, right? Whereas, whereas here, it's it's like you have to have some sort of excuse, or you have to be a movie that is like more on its face, you know. Try. I keep saying things today. I keep saying things today. Anyway, Mark, Mark, we should get back yeah. to serious things. Okay, before we get back to the serious things, uh, one last thing on the sexy stuff, um, <laughs> which is that. Um, wait, wait, wait! Uh, sexy versus dog. sexy versus ser- serious is not a dichotomy, at least not one that I'm willing to count. <laughs> this, is, this is both sexy and not serious. Okay, Chekhov's kumquat dictates that if a safe word is introduced in the first act of yes, the movie, it must yes. be used by the third act of the movie. This movie did not follow the rule. A Chekhov's kumquat, and uh, I, 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 for one, was slightly disappointed by that. Um, it, it, I, I mean, I guess to the point of the broader conversation, it's that like this movie did not have tons and tons of artistic intentionality where it was concerned about introducing things in the first act and resolving them by the third. Um, I mean, actually, quite conspicuously, like you know, it sets up all the sexual tension between these two characters. 
um, a Vin Diesel triple X and uh, Becky, I believe is her name, the, the, the tech, the tech, um, but they do not in fact get it on. Um, because no. she, she finds sexual release by firing a gun, I think maybe. I'm not quite sure what was going on there. Well, the, I mean, this goes this goes to the thing. Like when Pete says it's not necessarily sexist because of the objectification, right? Like, like objectification is a thing that happens in in films. Like it's inherent in the process of photographing something. A photograph turns a real thing into an object, right? And and uh, so I I think that that ipso facto we can't necessarily object to it. Not if you want to watch movies, but the but you have to kind of look to, to the at the uses to which. Uh, the objectification is being put, and so so I, I sign on with Pete that like uh, it's not sexist for that reason; it's sexist for other reasons. Though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. all right. So, so back to the serious stuff for real here, and I think we maybe uh, this might take us home uh, at, at the tail end of the podcast here, which is to just kind of cash out um, all the ideas we talked about earlier around uh, culture versus counterculture, and like sort of the real political. Uh, stance that this movie takes, if it is taking a stance at all. Um, so there's a couple of key uh, pieces of dialogue that are relevant to this discussion. Earlier on in the movie, uh, when Mark is talking with Triple X in the church and sort of re- you know recruiting him back into the fold, they have this exchange, which basically says Triple X says they're no patriots anymore; they're just uh, rebels and tyrants. And then Mark asks Xander, "What are you?" And he responds, "I'm Triple X." I mean, he's subverting his own false dichotomy there um, and, and states his own individuality. And then at the end, uh, when he's sitting down with Sam Jackson, um, uh, Grissom, was that his name? Uh, Gibbons. Gibbons, Gibbons. Uh, and, uh, Decline and, and of, fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, indeed. Um, they're, they're sort of expounding on a worldview at the end, right? Which is basically that triple X, the triple X team, the program, should be the check on power uh, that the power itself doesn't know that it needs um, to which uh, Xander Cage seems uh, rather uh, indifferent to this whole notion <laughs> of it. And then Samuel L. Jackson boils out down uh, to the aforementioned famous line of, let me, let me make it simple for you. Uh, uh, you know, uh, kick some ass, get the girl and try to look dope while doing it um, to well, and kick so, some ass. He doesn't say save the world. No, he doesn't say that. So oh, kick some ass, get the, get the girl. No, he doesn't say save the world. Um, so let's try to square up all these different ideas here. Right. Where um, we have a counterculture that is no longer counter to anything, and yet Vin Diesel uh, is like, you know, proposes a counterculture to his own proposed uh, cultural framework of uh, of rebels versus tyrants. Right? He says he's neither of those; he's triple X. And at the end, uh, he is not interested in the politics of um, you know vigilantes and state actors and non-state actors. I, I, if I had to say anything, I, I guess it's advocating for some uh, extreme extreme version of individuality that is not anchored to anything at all. And I guess that kind of comports to this transnational digital uh, uh, economy and worldview that we're moving to. But uh, I suspect that there's something else going on. So, Matt, Pete, I'm very curious to hear what you guys think about this. I think that. It's interesting, right? Because Samuel L. Jackson offers a number of different philosophical justifications for the XXX program. The big one, in addition to the one you mentioned, is the one about the Lords of Dogtown and how, what is it, the, the skateboarders needed the drought in order to discover the sick air that they could achieve from The, from the world needs the drought, in turn, right, to, to, to bring out these special ability people to, to, save, uh, to save their society. Right. Which is interesting, right? Because it's it sort of sets the triple X teams up as an end in themselves, right? Like the world needs there to be tyrants because otherwise there won't be six super spies base jumping <laughs> off of bridges, right? Like, <laughs> which is, uh, uh, I tell you, it's just Vin Diesel's world. We're all just living in it. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, but it's it's like, oh, does it mean that the world needs a cabal to seize power and? And destroy uh, civil society because then the world will catch sick air. Who is catching the sick air, right? Neymar doesn't need to catch sick air. He's already an Olympic gold medalist and like a huge international star. Uh, But yeah, this idea that, um, well, first of all, power doesn't know that it needs a check on itself is an interesting thing to say because nominally most government structures do have some sort of check 
on the authority, even if it's just utterly cosmetic, right? But whether it's like a constitutional monarchy or something like the uh, like some sort of junta, right, that could potentially remove the head of state, right? Or uh, or in the case of the United States, things like the judicial and legislative executive branches, right? Uh, the the idea of like the sort of um, efficient state. Right. Like the old idea of the the House of Commons is the efficient state and the House of Lords uh, is not is not the one that's actually running the country like things like that. Right. That there's there are checks that the governments of the world should be aware that exist. And it's interesting to think that that the idea that the government's not knowing that they have institutional checks on their own power that they should be observing is seen by Samuel L. Jackson as, as like sort of a failure of a child. Right. As like, you know, they don't know. it. it's like they don't know any better in the context of triple X. Right, right? Right. The they don't know what's good the for themselves. World, yeah. They don't know that they should be following their constitutions. Right. Uh, they don't know that they should be kind of uh, uh, that, you know, even even Mubarak. Right. Uh, should be aware that the, the military of Egypt could depose him. Did I get the name right? I hope I did. Um, yeah, Mubarak. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And so like um, or him or his descendants and whatnot. Uh, but but like the idea that. By by uh, but that triple X will serve as a check on the government. It seems to me that he's saying that it's for the good of the government. Right. Like that, like the government will benefit from having a secret organization to kind of reveal its inefficient policies by doing, catching sick base jumping air off of bridges while stealing their boondoggle overpriced and inefficient technology projects that don't serve a purpose. Right. Um it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of ways to indict it, right? You can also say, well, it's clearly not written with this kind of precision, but there's no fun in that. Uh, it certainly is delivered with a great deal of, of intent, as we've talked about in past weeks, which seems to make it real. I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, it, I mean, the the thing that – it's something I've been thinking about a lot for other reasons over the last uh, uh, several weeks and months is the the sort of complete abandonment – of faith in the idea of liberal democracy, right? Like the the ideals of the Enlightenment totally, um, <laughs> just totally uh, scattered to the winds, left on the floor. That the that you know the the idea of faith in institutions isn't just that like the great you know the great men the great white men of America are looking out for me. The idea of of faith in institutions is that. Um, through uh through reason we can come to a perfectible uh improving um you know sort of good enough self-government that uh that you know will continue continue on and that that just seems to be in the in the kind of like there there are rebels and tyrants well you know you know what there aren't but you know like philosophers you know uh there aren't um just sort of people of uh people of goodwill uh within their their limited capacities trying trying to do the best they can recognizing their limited capacities and trying to design institutions that uh, will um you know supply remedies for for some of their most overt failings um that that this this is a uh, and and this reflects something i think about the this reflects something about the world i think um and and just the way there's a certain kind of uh homogeneity you know uh in in the heroes in the villains in sort of all all the actors um the the idea of sort of self-interest or the kind of the 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 lone cowboy aesthetic like in in the american um myth the cowboy is like one guy you know everyone else is society and there's one john wayne and he does some awful things out there on the frontier with them indians and whatnot right uh and he does some some atrocious killing and and some some real man's inhumanity to men out there uh you know and and the society rests on his ability to do those acts which ipso facto exclude him from the society but uh on balance, you know, 99.9% of people are are in society. The, the thing that, that strikes me about this is that, you know, everybody's a cowboy, you know? Everybody's uh, an Instagram celebrity. Everybody's a, a, a star and nobody is an audience. Um, 
anymore. And, you know, and the, the idea that like, uh, uh, sort of gathering, I mean, Pete, a little earlier, you talked about sort of gathering people to look, right? Uh, ensuring an audience. Um, this is actually, uh, kind of parodied in the movie, uh, with the, um, with uh, uh, the final stunt, which is a parachute-free jump out of an airplane, you know, uh, it, uh, and, and uh, before he says anything else, he says, "Make sure you have the video camera ready." And at the end, he says, "If it's not on video, it di- uh, it didn't happen." And this is the sort of, you know, this is the the sort of Vine starization uh, of of culture, of the idea of heroism, of the idea of of the cowboy, right? Like if everybody is a cowboy and if everybody uh exists outside of of society um suddenly we're all tyrants and and rebels we're not liberal democracies anymore i mean capital l liberal uh in the sense of enlightenment um and uh, everybody enjoys a kind of moral license, uh, a kind of like I play by my own rules um, justification for you know acting in accordance with with their impulses. And this is an interesting. I mean, this is an interesting thing to export to a lot of cultures, which maybe don't share the the kind of uh, individualistic American ethos. Um, or at least have their own sort of unique take on it, given their own uh, unique history and, and, and values. You know, I don't know. That's, that's that as, as I landed uh, on the pallet, you know, and walked out of the dust cloud, that's, that's what I uh, walked away from this film thinking. Oh my God. It's triple X from 2005 ice cube. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God! He was Triple X in two thousand five. <laughs> X takes care of its own, baby. <laughs> and it's been waiting eleven years for somebody to dial nine. <laughs> it's a long time. If you to, haven't seen yeah. the movie yet. God bless you. But <laughs> oh man. Anyway, sorry. Go for it. We, well, we should we should wrap it. We should call it uh, on that. With that, our our extreme podcast uh, is at an end. If you'd like to talk with us about Triple X, the return of Xander Cage, and you should want to talk about to us about Triple X return of Xander Cage, uh, head on over to the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Go to the homepage at overthinking.com. Uh, find this episode near the top of the page there and click on show notes. You'll find the comments section there as well as, uh, as y- you know, some links that we put into things that are very, uh, very important like, uh, uh, Herodotus, uh, account of the ring of Gyges or, uh, Gibbons, the history of the decline and fall of the Roman empire or a page about the X games. If you're too young to know what those are. And if you are, God bless you. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to an extreme level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. The things I do for my podcast. And by things, I mean women. The things I do for my podcast. And by things, I mean seeing movies on Thursday nights. The things I do for my podcast. And by things, I mean you who. <laughs> Oh my god, it's Triple X from 2007, Harvey Firestein! <laughs> Hello! <laughs>